Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper. <clears throat> and today is Friday. No, not Friday. <laughs> Sunday. Sunday. It's Sunday. I'm confused. February 23rd, right? Am yeah, I right yeah, about that? Really, that is my line. Oh, I'm that's, sorry. That's why you got it wrong. Okay. So it's here, my line. Here's my line. We're going to talk about a variety of things today, including 1917, which we got around to seeing. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But uh, we were going to start talking about what we the play we saw on Thursday night, which was uh, Mac and Mabel. By? Well, Jerry Herman. At? At City Center, on the Encore series, where they do very short, week-long revivals, if you want to call that, of plays which were worth seeing again, but ne don't necessarily merit a full revival. And I think Mac and, Mac, Mac and Mabel pretty much fit that bill Precisely, wouldn't you say? Right. Right. So Mac and Mabel is, is the story of um, Mac Sennett and Mabel Norman, who were figures in the silent film industry at the beginning of the 20th century. Mac Sennett being a major director, Mabel Norman being, uh, we'll call a major starlet. And apparently they had great success for some time. And then at a certain point, uh, they met a, well, uh, Mabel Norman met a tragic end at a very young age. Uh, Max Sennett, uh, his career went downhill once we went from the silent films to the talkies. Uh, and the film is, a, is about their careers and more to the point, their ill-fated love affair. Uh, not the film, I should say, the play. But it's a musical more than anything else. And by Jerry Herman, who happened to pass away a couple of months ago, who wrote some great musicals, uh, Hello, Dolly, La Caja Fall. Mame. And this is a musical that a lot of people who are big Jerry Herman fans have strong feelings about uh, because there are some great songs in it, but it was not a success. It just played on Broadway some years ago for 66 performances, which is just a couple of months. So that's a flop. So what did you think? I give up. What do you mean? I just totally give up. About? I'm so looking forward to this. Yeah. I mean, last week I mentioned the songs I like. Right. Time heals everything. I won't send roses. I was interested in the lead, Douglas Sills. Right. Loved him. Loved right. him right. in uh, Scarlet Pimpernel. Right. Um, my heart was all a flutter. Well, and I could barely stay awake. Well, you know, you are seeing it the way a lot of people saw it. There's a lot of people who well, what the who root for this show, but the show doesn't work. Um, you know, it's hard to know whether the show could ever work. I mean, I have some sense about why this production doesn't work, and maybe the show is just uh, doomed to failure. We did read, uh, we were looking at an interview with Angela Lansbury five years ago, in which they asked her what she wanted to see encores do, and she said this show, Mac and Mabel. And uh, she's, she always felt that it deserved better, and it was Jerry Herman's effort to really delve into character a little bit more, to make the characters more human, and let's say, hello, Dolly. Uh but it somehow didn't work. And even though, even though the stars of that original 1974 production, yeah, were Bernadette Peters, right, and Robert Preston, right. And I mean, if they can't do it, who the heck can? You're right. And uh, the recordings I've heard, yeah. of the songs yeah. are from those two, and, and, and they're I, poignant, and, and they're wonderful, right. And, and I wanted to see it all, <laughs> and it was. But it didn't. Well, look, you're right. You're pointing out two things. First of all. Uh, that was a great cast then. This cast was good. Douglas Sills, Alexandra Socia. 
but they weren't, you could see where Preston and Burnett Peters would be better. Because what you had here, the casting here and the way they played it with the director were too on the nose. In other words, Max Fennett's a tough guy, uh, always interested in making movies. He's unsentimental. That's the way they present him. And that's the way Sills established the character in the first two lines of the play. And that character goes nowhere. He's done. That's all you're going to see from that character. And and Mabel Norman, is played by Alexandra Socha, is, is a small-town girl. She worked for Delicatessen. She finds herself thrust into this uh, role as being a starlet. And she's a small-town girl. She's terribly unsophisticated. She's uninteresting. She's not smart. She's got nothing. And that character goes nowhere, too. Uh, Burnett Peters is always a diva, so you know that there's a dimension there. Robert Preston could never play a tough guy because he's not a tough guy. <laughs> oh. uh, so... Much better chance then, it still doesn't succeed. I, I think, but I think that's ultimately the problem. That even if perhaps what he's trying to do is explore the characters uh, and trying to balance the songs, which are all very upbeat, or a lot of them are very upbeat, with the tragic aspects of the love story, you need to have character development. And it's not written in a way that the characters go anywhere. There's no reason to believe that these two people are attracted to each other. There's no reason to believe that there's an arc in the way they see their relationship precedes other. And therefore, you're not involved in the way the love story ends. So that's why I think it fails. Um, but in any event, it doesn't and work. Frankly, uh, Alexandra Socha, yeah. is that her name? Yeah. Um, she is teeny. Yeah. And from the mezzanine, it looked like... Uh, She's 12 years old. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really... There was no chemistry between those right. two people. And it, to the extent there looked, was, it was icky. He looked like know? her father. Yeah. yeah. So what, it didn't work. But the, the other thing is, and, and Lansbury brought this up, is the juxtaposition of those um, big numbers right. that were basically offshoots of his... You know, um, silent movies, yeah, Keystone Cop type stuff, Uh, right? The Keystone Cop stuff, the Bathing Beauty stuff, the big tap dance numbers against this sort of tragic love story, right? Just didn't work, right? I mean, maybe in some cases it can, and it's an interesting juxtaposition, but it just kind of fell flat. And full disclosure, not a Keystone Cops girl, right. No, yeah. neither, neither. Yeah, uh, so I, I'm not a Keystone cop. I did not so. find those scenes riotous. Well, you see, that's what's interesting. I don't want to, I'll just, I don't think we have to go into this, but there's a little bit of this in the uh, Lansbury. There's a little bit of the comparison to Steve Sondheim. And the truth of the matter is, Steve Sondheim does that kind of thing and it does work. So it, it, it's, it's hard to do. It's hard to have what they call pastiche, what they call these outlandish numbers. In some cases, in Follies, they're really vaudeville numbers, and yet have a tragic backstory at the same time. Very difficult to do. And maybe it was too much. It was too much to do in Mac and Maple. So disappointed in Mac and Maple. But, you know, still worth seeing, still fun. And then uh, Friday, uh, very strange, very interesting. Uh, Friday. No, 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 no. You were going to do a little thing. Oh, oh, oh. You I skipped something. You wanted to talk about Broadway.com. tickets. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, just quickly. Very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about a guy named John Gore who runs an outfit called Broadway.com. And among other things. Among other things. So he, he's, he's got a huge business. He's a magnet. Taking yes. over right. the theater world. Because he invests in all kinds of aspects of theater, including roadshows and the like. So he's not just selling tickets, but he is a piece of the production. And that, I'm talking big time, including Hamilton. 
So he's deep. He's got his claws into everything. And I will tell you from an antitrust perspective, the question I want to know is whether he has something to do with setting ticket prices. And if that, frankly, would worry me because he's a big ticket seller and he's setting the ticket prices of all the shows, that's a lack of competition. But put that aside for just a moment. What Something I learned when that's I read— That's kind of a vertical thing? No, that's uh, horizontal. Isn't that sort of, no. It's not horizontal? It's horizontal because they're competing. He, he produces the show. Oh, you're, he no, sets you're right about that. The price. But he that's sells not the problem. The ticket. But that's not the problem. You don't think that's a problem? Well, the vertical aspect is not a problem because he can do all those things. It doesn't bother me. The problem is if he, if you have two hit shows or three hit shows or 10 shows that you might consider seeing on Broadway and the same person is setting the prices for all of them or something to say about the prices for all of them, there's a lack of competition in pricing. So you might say, gee, I don't know whether I want to see Hamilton or I want to see uh, Ain't Too Proud, but maybe, maybe Ain't Too Proud's cheaper. If he's setting the prices, it's not. So that's, that's a horizontal com- lack of right. competition. So problem. anyway, but anyway. But here's what, what I learned. What we found interesting about right. the article, both of us, yeah. was uh, figuring out where to buy tickets. Right. And uh, when you Google a show, Broadway.com, is one of the first things to come up right. if you want to buy tickets. And uh, it's not terribly clear that they are a ticket broker, a reseller. Right. Okay, so when you have a broker, that organization or business has purchased tickets right. from you know the box office or whatever and is reselling them to you. Yeah. Okay? Let me put it the reverse way, because I think the way they advertise or the way it comes up, you say, I want discount tickets. You'll get Broadway.com. And the thought is that they're an organization who has, a, who has license or an arrangement that they can offer discount tickets. And they're not. They're what you say. They can, they're not that organization. They just bought some tickets and they're holding them. And they're right. reselling them. And, this is, and that tells you one thing. They're going to be reselling them for more then you would pay at the box office. So if you go so to no Telecharge yeah. or Ticketmaster, right? Okay, you get sort of the price. You get, they get number one. Matter of fact, it's your first option. You should go there first, and let's say it's a hundred dollars a ticket. You're going to pay a hundred dollars. They'll give you some service charge, which is damned annoying, right. and it becomes one hundred fifteen dollars, one hundred twenty dollars. Right. If you go to Broadway.com, they're going to sell the ticket to you for a hundred dollars at a base plus a much higher service charge right? because they're a broker. So instead of 115 you're going to spend 140 or 150 Yeah. all right? And they say in their defense, but we still might be a good deal because it could be that if you go to StubHub and you go to the marketplace, right. that uh, you'll have to pay more because it could be that uh, those Hamilton tickets are going for $800, okay? And right. So I, I wait, 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 let me finish for a second. Yeah. You want to know the truth? They're, they're, they're lying when they say that. Because when you have a situation where the Hamilton tickets are going $800, Broadway.com is selling its tickets on StubHub. So they're not making them available. In other words, they are never giving you a better deal. They are never giving you a better deal. They're always going to charge you. Now, now, it could be that telecharge is out, so you're kind of out of luck. But they're always charging you telecharge plus 20%. Right. But, but as you just said... If they if telecharge is sold out, yeah, and they may be, yeah, um, Broadway.com may have tickets. No, that, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they may because they have bought the tickets. You're right. They're holding them. All right. They may, they may. But what I'm telling you is, their tickets will never be cheaper than StubHub's. 
Yes, but if you really want to go and you want to go on a particular night and that's the only way to get the ticket... It might be. That but, may be what you've got but to do. The, the point but is, the point is that Broadway.com, you know, it can seem like it's some official arm of Broadway. It's not. And it's not. Yeah. It's just another ticket seller. So that was kind of interesting to read all of right. that and, and see the actual charts right. with price comparisons. Yes, I, and, it, you know, there are obviously bigger differences if you're looking at Hamilton in New York than if you're looking at um, a national tour of uh, Chicago or something right. in Chicago. Uh, so, um, you know, word to the wise there. That, that was an interesting article. So Friday, as I, I was starting to say before, we, uh, you know, we were nosing around. We had made uh, reservations for dinner. And then we uh, happened over to what uh, we have a market here. Uh, what well, there's we, a farmer's market. Farmer's it's market. indoors. Right. And we walked over there just to see what's going on on Friday evening because uh, we had heard there was some activity. And we noticed that they had some attractive things open into the evening, we learned. Uh, they have, in particular, a barbecue place. They also have a fish place. They have pizza place. And, and there's a little, we learned, because we didn't know, that was not, not closing at 4 o'clock, but it was open till 7, 8, 9, whatever. And... Um, it looks so appealing that we were persuaded, as we when we went back home, to cancel our dinner reservations and to come back and to pick up some barbecue or whatever from the farmer's market and sort of take out and eat at home. And what's interesting is when we returned an hour later. And what, yes. we, what did we It was shocking. <laughs> you know, this, this sounds... I'm not even sure I was there for all this. <laughs> you were there. Yeah. Um, but uh, the point is that... Uh, we went into the local farmer's market. We looked at the brisket. Yeah. It looked so delicious, we came back later. Yeah. We canceled all our plans, came back to get that damn brisket. And? And uh, that what a party was going on. That's right. Turns out they have music every Friday night. This is- Turns out people come. Uh, there are long tables. They set up. They buy some wine at the liquor store uh, a couple doors away. And uh, it was uh, fantastic. There but there's was... also there's also a fishmonger there <laughs> who is making fish and chips. Right. He's making uh, fish tacos. It's a party. Who is setting up there are, uh, there are, oysters on the half There half are hundred, shell. Hundreds, hundred people there, at least. Right. And then and, and the music going, it's a huge scene. And we had no idea. I mean, we Because been... we're just dumb. That could be. But the point is, an hour. There was no clue an hour before. An hour before, there were four people there, and we didn't know. Well, it was you know, it was like five o'clock. Even by, so, by six fifteen, uh, it was uh, kind of a fun scene. So that was fun, and we had another good eating adventure. We went up to Milford to uh, the Canal House Station. Yeah, uh, which was fabulous. Was fabulous. It is the, one of the most beautiful Canal House Station. If you ever get Milford. to Milford, uh, I don't know who's getting to Milford, but it is unbelievable. It's worth the trip. It was unbelievable. And uh, one of the um, key people is Melissa Hamilton, right? Daughter of Jim Hamilton, restaurateur, bon vivant, right? And this is a place. Designer. This is a place has a limited menu, uh, limited hours. You go there for breakfast or lunch most of the time. They have an early Sunday supper. It is a beautiful setting. You get yourself a wonderful sandwich or omelet, but it's much. It's very, very nice, and it's twelve dollars. I mean, it, it well, is. It's not twelve dollars, but anyway, um, it, it was pretty it much. Is, it pretty was, much. It was uh, quite exquisite. Yeah. All right. So that's Melissa Hamilton, and then this morning we get up and Gabriel, or Gabrielle yeah. Hamilton, had a fun article telling us how to do gravlocks. Oh, is that by her? Yeah. I, I didn't realize that. 
So uh, we were kind of. I'm looking forward to that. By the, the Hamilton. Does this girls. mean you feel that you can make Ravlocks now? Because I'm looking forward to that. You know, I always think about it. Do you? Always? Well, yeah, I've been reading. You know, I've been reading articles about making your own gravlocks since like 1978. I'll be happy to uh, pick up. But some then fish you have an awful lot of gravlocks. That's okay. Yeah, let's get some salmon. They have good salmon here. Um, so and, and then uh, we went to the movies, right? Went to the movies last night, Saturday night, and we saw 1917. Well, part of the reason we went was because it was uh, so touted. Yes, of in uh, the Academy Awards, right? And uh, some of my students recommended it. Some of the film students, right? And I was dragging my feet, right? Because it's a war movie, um, and I was stunned. Yeah, yeah, it was riveting. It, it was quite, you know, uh, it was violent, uh, but it was beautiful, and it was uh, heartrending. Um, but uh, I thought it was great. Yeah. It was, it's by Sam Mendes. By Sam Mendes. It starts a whole, a whole raft of English actors. Well, it's got uh, cameo appearances by, by, by a whole bunch all of the people you love. Right. right. So it's uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Mark Strong, Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, people like that. Uh, the guy is the real star of the movie, this young guy named George McKay. Probably not a, a name you would recognize, not one we would recognize. But it, it's not that kind of film. You know, it's funny. I was thinking, you know, the Max Sen, it's talking about making silent movies. Uh, there's very little dialogue in 1917. Right. I mean, uh, the music is powerful, but, yes. uh, you know, it might as well be a silent movie, frankly, um, which is fine. just shows you how, how strong the images can be, and it's a reminder that the silent movies could have some impact. You could see it uh, from watching that film. I mean, I, I was also reminded of the documentary you saw last year, They Shall Not Grow Old, which was... Uh, about World War One, in which they restored remarkably all this real footage of these these uh, kids who were fighting World War One and the trenches, and it was colorized, uh, and it was extremely moving and moving in a in almost an odd way. They ended on sort of a song, uh, which they had recorded uh, right. recently for yeah. it, which was really sung by the staff. So it's kind of a joke, but uh, also. Terribly moving uh, about World War One. Um, yeah, and and actually, Mendes seemed to capture that in this movie as well. The youth of these, uh, the youth and the madness yeah. of this uh, war um, that is so sort of heartrending. Um, so again, uh, yeah, I would recommend it. I would recommend seeing it in the theater. Oh yeah, that's seeing yeah, it on you the big see that screen the right. with the big sound. Right, um, really. Uh, worth it, and we had a good crowd. Yeah, in that theater. Yeah, um, we did. We did. We did. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was Surprising. pretty full. Yeah, for something that's been open that yeah. long, and um, so I do recommend that. Okay, but uh, all right. So now then, uh, this is. I told you about this. I just want to be. I want to be clear that I came home one day and I said, "Did you hear about this exhibit at the Whitney?" Right. Yes, and I had. So. Oh, there. you had. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, there the way, you have it. Not the way I remember um, it, okay. but okay. So, I want to talk about um, Museum Update. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Um, two killer shows. Okay. Killer shows. Uh, killer shows. Uh, one is Vida Americana, Mexican muralist remake American art, 1925 to 1945, at the Whitney. That's the new Whitney downtown. Okay, um, and uh, it uh, really uh, takes a look 
As the New York Times says, a show explores the impact of Mexican painters in the United States in mingling that enriched American culture. So it's built around those the Los Tres Grandes, the three great ones. Diego Rivera. The, the big three. Diego okay. Rivera, right? Right. And the other two, I don't know. Oh, well, you started out so strong. Right. Jose Clemente Orozco and David Alfaro Siqueiros. Sure. Um, Easy for and, you to say. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, interesting uh, because, and let me, the, the way the Times sums it up is great. The result at the Whitney is a study in multidirectional flow, tides meeting mingling, which is the dynamic of art history as it is or should be of American life. It's a dynamic of generosity, giving the show warmth and grandeur. Why would we want to stop that flow now? Yes. So that's sort of a commentary on um, yeah. the influence of it's, it's, it's uh, Mexico. It's kind of a, a dumb political uh, remark. But well, I know, but uh, um, the point is... Yes. That uh, there is, there has been, there was this uh, influence I agree. on that's American a, art. That's and a legitimate point. The interesting thing about the show is it shows you works and reproductions and projection mm. yeah. of works by Los Tres Grandes. And their influence okay? on Americans. And, and it shows you works by people, Americans, right. they influence. And here's what uh, the Wall Street Journal put their finger on. Um, it really gives you a picture of American art history between the early 20th century prominence of European-inspired modernism and the post-war dominance of that New York City abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. Okay, So we're not used to... It really shows you how there's another factor in there that these Mexican artists really influenced modern American art. I can see that. I right? can absolutely see so that. So that was a very fertile time. Yeah. Right. And, uh, there, you know, it's a big, big subject. Um, you know, some of the artists we should mention, you haven't heard of, but many you have. Pollock, Gustin, Jacob Lawrence, Will Barnett, uh, Isama Noguchi, Marion Greenwood, and others. I but think they in, had George O'Keefe in there, too. No, they said George O'Keefe managed not to be oh, is that very right? influenced. Okay, all right. Um, well, at, one of the things that Times, it might have been the Wall Street Journal article, because I think that's the first one you read. Yeah. Uh, they say is, Whitney, this exhibition, everything's borrowed. Oh, that's true. I saw Whitney that. has nothing none of this. in none of this. their yeah, collection. The journal said that. Yeah. From these people. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, that that were influenced or you know were the influencers. They, they thought that um, was an important point. And you know there was tremendous um, sort of cross fertilization yeah. during this period. You know I love to collect Mexican silver right. from the '40s and '50s. That gets jump started by someone named William Spratling in the 20s and 30s, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was uh, not accidental. There there were influences at work, uh, kind of trying to build some kind of cultural relationship between Mexico and the U.S. during that period. In fact, uh, George Biddle, an artist, writes to FDR in 1933 saying... You know, none of these great Mexican murals would exist except that the Mexican government financed them. Oh. 
And that helps give birth to, to all those fantastic right? yeah. WPA right. projects yeah. 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 Um, and the murals that we have in post offices right. and other public buildings around the U.S. Uh, so there's much to see here. Um, like Rose- like Roosevelt. Am I right about Roosevelt? Roosevelt has one of those murals. What? Roosevelt has one of those murals. Didn't, it? didn't we see that in that town? Oh, the Ben Chan. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, they're all over. Yeah, all okay. Right. Um, I thought you were talking about the person. No. Okay. Um, but uh, so anyway, Vida Americana, Mexican muralist uh, at the Whitney. It's, um, God, I don't know the dates. Sorry to say that. That's but all right. uh, you should, uh, it's worth it. seeing the works of art and it's worth contemplating um, that sort of great interaction in, on a lot of levels. I mean, that's a big subject that I think we're going to see more and more about. The other great exhibition, um, uh, a once-in-a-lifetime, it is the show of the year, some people are saying, is Titian, Love, Desire, and Death. And uh, that is uh, at the, um, why am I losing it now, the National Gallery in uh, um, London, opening March 17th. And that brings together... Um, six large-scale mythological paintings by Titian, the Venetian artist who spent decades as Europe's most celebrated painter. He found tremendous inspiration uh, from these ancient mythological stories of passion, uh, etc. Uh, mostly their interpretations of Ovid and the Metamorphoses. Anyway, there are six paintings called the Poesy that he painted for Philip II in Spain uh, between 1551 and 1562. And uh, it's an opportunity to see these paintings. The last one that he painted, The Rape of Europa, actually ended up in the Boston Isabella uh, Stewart Gardner uh, Museum. Okay, that's also supposed to be the one that's most intact, it's most in its original state. And uh, so it's a fun opportunity to see these magnificent paintings. Some version of this show is going to travel to Boston, so maybe there's an opportunity to see it there. But I think uh, it would be great to see the whole show. By, by the time you get to the end of Titian, he's working in a very brushy painterly manner that I think will surprise people that this is happening in the 16th century. It, it, it would appear, if you knew nothing else, you would think it was much later, you know, 19th century or even 20th century. Okay. So that's and kind of fun. Do I have more? Yes. <gasps> I have more. Just, um, just a little bit. Do you have something on the restoration? Just, um, Painting restoration. Well, investigation yeah. is more about, it's, um, the, the title is of it, the article in the New York Times was Time Robs the Scream of Its Color. Okay, so we know Edward Monk's uh, The Scream. Everybody knows it because everybody feels like that at some well, point. Well, it gets parodied quite a bit. My, well, my students see this, you know, they totally identify with it. You know, there are moments in your life yeah. where you feel like that guy in The Scream. And uh, it's a... He did more than one version. This is the 1910 version. It was a tempera... It, it was even stolen in 2004 and then gets returned uh, to the museum in Oslo. And uh, the colors are changing. Yeah. The colors are changing. Why 
what can we do about it? And it's it's kind of a fascinating Didn't article. Didn't they have, they had like a Van Gogh, they show the colors were changing. Yeah, well, it's not unusual. See, um, here's the deal. Uh, during the 19th century, yeah. uh, technology of pigments changes, yeah. okay? Originally, pigments were all, you know, like lapis lazuli blue was made from grinding up lapis lazuli, you know, stones, Okay, and mixing them with the various vehicles like oil mm. or whatever, whatever to make pigments. That's too expensive. You can't, you know, uh, you you don't want to rely on that. So it's during the 19th century that they're beginning to create synthetic pigments. All right, one of them is this yellow cadmium uh, that the artists were using. The artists are beginning to use the syn synthetic pigments. Not all of them are perfect. Not all of them last or hold. Van Gogh worried about that. We have in his letters to his brother, uh, his concerns that I don't think this or that is a good color. And it's really, you know, as soon as I paint, these things are changing. Um, and they do, in this article, show a dramatic uh, yeah. example of how the art is uh, changing extremely. So this brings up a couple of interesting things for me. One is that scientific aspect of art history that exists now. And of course, art historians have always been fighting that, that it's more about connoisseurship, etc. But really, we can't get away from the science now because it's being so helpful in terms of uh, figuring these issues out, maybe solving them, maybe finding ways to um, even give us uh, virtual projections of what the art might have looked like originally as opposed to what we're seeing, mm -hmm. okay? So that's a great career for people, don't you think? Yeah, uh, sure. If you... Can't make a living as an art, as an art historian, well, you can't. Uh, but uh, maybe if you study the science of it, you have a much better chance of being able to uh, convert. Uh, um, it's also interesting that how um, technology always affects creativity, cre affects art in these ways. So this development of synthetic uh, pigments really changed uh, art uh, in itself. And it's interesting in this this idea of how we're going to look at art in the future. Is it just going to be the original artifacts, which don't look at all uh, as they did when the artist painted it? Or will we be um, inspired more by these projections, these virtual projections of what they might have looked like? So art gets more and more complex, even though answers are being uh, come upon by these scientists. All right. So this is the 40th anniversary. Yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the uh, uh, victory of the uh, U.S. hockey team over the Soviet Union in the Olympics. Miracle on Ice. Miracle on Ice was the name of the movie uh, about this. Coached, the team coached by Herb Brooks, much celebrated, no secret. But, you know, for those of us who lived through this, you know, there's a reason why it was such a profound event, such a huge upset, but such a big political event. And it's hard to put yourself back in that place. So I'll make just three points about this because I think it's a subject people know enough about. I mean, one How is... How is it difficult? Well, here's something you may not know. What, in 1980, what percentage of the NHL were American players? Ten. How the heck did you know that? Because we talked about this before. Did I tell you that? Yes. Oh, my God. Anyway. No, 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 not in reference to this article, but we were 
We were talking in a podcast maybe a year right, or two right. ago about 10%. how we, we always a, assumed that all hockey players are Canadian. Well, now the percentage is higher. But in 1980, it was 10%. It's not mm-hmm. a U.S. sport, right? Yeah. So that's point one. Point two is the Olympics at that time, and people take it for granted now, it's another way, was just amateurs. So those, those hockey players who were in the NHL, they couldn't play in the Olympics. So the only people who could play in the Olympics for the U.S. Yeah. were collegiate hockey players, yeah. which is a huge step down. And it wasn't even that big a sport in college. It was a sport, but it wasn't a major sport. And it was um, major to some of us. Yeah, well, it, it, it was, yes. Yeah. But and number three is the political climate was that the Soviet Union uh, was a real threat. That we had gone through. Right, Daniel, you and I grew up at a time when, you know, uh, you know, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, right. you know, uh, those dirty Ruskies. Right. Uh, you know, it, it was well, but it wasn't very the, uh, cold war. We were, right, you know, it was huge cold war, but the yeah. 70s were a rough period. We were dying to be Jimmy Russians Carter, in anything. Right. Jimmy Carter was uh, very negative. He, that's one of the reasons he got voted out. Because he always said, we have huge challenges ahead. I don't know if we can surmount them. He was not exactly a positive guy, as opposed to Ronald Reagan, who took over. But the 70s was kind of doom and gloom. So you get to 1980, and that's the background. And the Soviet Union hockey team was formidable for many reasons, in part because they kind of were pros. They were called the Red Army Team. These guys were in the Army. They were being paid by the government, but they really just played hockey. And they played great hockey. So they had... You know, the odds were against them. And you had this whole communist, uh, you know, machine at work. Right. East Germans did that too, right? Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Cheaters. Well, no, I'm not calling anybody a cheater. Ah. I'm not saying cheater. They're playing within the rules, but they were were setting it up that way. So, but here's what's interesting. Al Michaels, of course, is famous for saying, do you believe in miracles when they won the game? And uh, that's, you know, that's a nice quote. But he actually, it's very interesting what he said at the beginning of the game. And I'll just read this couple sentences. What we have here is the rarest of sporting events, an event that needs no buildup, no adjectives. In a political or nationalistic sense, I'm sure this is being viewed by certain people with different perspectives. But manifestly, it's a hockey game. So he's like reminding people it's not the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, but that's the way people saw it. And, uh, and of course, that's why they celebrated the way. We are just... Good old all American, you know, kids, student athletes, kids, kids. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll give you one final fact that shows the way time has changed. The, the leading scorer for the uh, U.S. hockey team is a fellow named Mark Johnson, and he is today the winningest coach in the history of women's hockey. He coaches University of Wisconsin at Madison. So you, as a former collegiate women's hockey player, I thought you'd be interested. In hearing that. Imagine what we could have done at Princeton with a real coach. Imagine. Well, whatever. Um, go ahead. Um, all right. So, uh, food. Yes. A couple of good uh, food articles in uh, the papers this week. One was about bread. Okay, so we do spend an inordinate time amount of time searching out good bread, and we yeah, it's very important to right. us. And we and, and we buy it in uh, bakeries. We buy it in specialty shops. We don't well, buy we, that. Well, we bread. go to the the Stockton Farmers Market. Right, sometimes has uh, a guy with good bread, well, and or a uh, special bakery yeah. in Princeton. Or you know, I love the uh, I love the grocery stores that uh, have Bake Off products right. that they you know kind of pass off as yeah. you know. Um, 
handcrafted, baked here items that are as spongy and nasty right. as anything in a plastic what, bag. What's the place, Maison, whatever, that, I, that we get bread in New York? Kaiser. Maison Kaiser, yeah. Great bread. But we go to, we seek it out. But the article in the Times was about someone who is that level of baker who came to uh, an epiphany, if you will, when they saw their kid in school. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Did I skip Blair something? Blair Marvin started making and selling bread yes. 15 years ago. This is in Vermont. Yeah. She promised herself three things. Yeah. She would never pre-slice it. She would never bake it in a pan. Right. She would certainly never sell it in plastic. Okay. But? And then she noticed when she went to help out uh, at her kids' school that uh, none of the kids who lived uh, in their town were buying their bread, were eating sandwiches on their bread. No. And she realized that... They, they were it, eating nasty bread. Right. Because, they were eating nasty uh, bread. Because that's the easier thing to buy. That's a less expensive thing to buy. That's what's in the supermarket. And that's what works with a sandwich. Right. No, no. It's to, more, it's more the other two. It's more the other two points. And her epiphany was, this isn't right. These kids aren't eating right. What can she do about solving this problem and making better bread available? so that these kids will be eating better bread. And that's when she starts working on developing a product that's going to break her own rules, that's going to be sliced, and it's going to be in a plastic bag. Well, this all is all happening uh, with the help of the Bread Lab, which is a research center affiliated with Washington State University. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they are researching grains and, you know, and also how to encourage bakers to make yeah. a, a better product, yeah. a more healthful product. Um, and uh, they have uh, developed a bread that uh, where the goal is to, you know, sell it uh, to people for everyday use um, in plastic, already sliced uh, at a price, hopefully less than $6, I think, is uh, their idea. And, um, you know, they say um, they have uh, the bread lab has set three strict parameters for what they call the approachable loaf. More than 60% of the flour must be whole wheat. It can't have more than seven ingredients, all of which have to be real food, not chemical additives. And it can't cost more than six dollars. And I think that's a great aspiration. Um, And we do. We actually do buy some bread in plastic bags sure, we for do. certain uses. Right. And uh, we were looking at them and this they, Yeah, morning. it certainly got us looking at the ingredients. And they all happen to have less than seven ingredients. Well, we're buying the right... You know, and no sugar We're buying the right thing, but, but you have to look at it. You have to uh, and look they're very it. tasty breads. Right. Um, another thing that's interesting to me is that uh, this weekend I bought a bread box. Yeah, right. Because we've been flailing about once you buy the great bread, yeah. the Maison Kaiser bread, or the local handcrafted artisanal bread at the farmer's market, how do you store it? And uh, if you put it in the refrigerator, it doesn't get moldy, but it doesn't stay fresh either. Um, if you put it in plastic, uh, it gets so, um, yeah, yeah. but the idea with the um, bread box is you still have circulation and uh, it should be... Yeah, which is remarkable because we had a bread box when I was growing up, as did you, and it feels like that's something that I know, but I'm kind of anti-having all these little things sitting on your well, counter. We'll look, we're, but we're giving it a shot. I think uh, I think if I had a brand new kitchen, yeah, I think I would probably try to incorporate some kind of bread drawer. All right. Well, listen, which, you've got which the... I think was in my grandparents. 
Um, I have, kitchen, I have, actually. You open a drawer and it had a little metal yes. lid on top and it had kind of a metal container within the drawer with some... I right. have only two words about the I bread box. I do go on. Two words about the bread box. What? Ha- happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and the other article was uh, The Pleasure of Defying Food Fashion Yes. in uh, the Wall Street Journal by B. Wilson. Which is, um, I'm not interested in the pleasure of defying food fashion. I mean, I'm, I'm always in, interested to some extent in defying fashion, right? right? I mean, who wants to eat avocado toast when everybody else is eating avocado toast? Well, you do. It's pretty good. Um, but uh, anyway, it's an interesting article in that she outlines the problems that end up when some food becomes a huge fad, okay? And it starts out by saying you can't be vegan if you eat avocados, said a teenage brother to his sister in a family I know. Avocados are violent. His point was that her supposedly ethical decision to replace the butter on her toast with avocado was hypocritical. The avocado has made life more dangerous for many Mexican avocado farmers, thanks to the rise of violent cartels that control the business. The boy crowed that his sister's toppings of choice was little better than blood guacamole. Well, look, look, the broader point is that if there are going to be food fairs, there's going to be surges in demand. And that the... And they're going to have reproductions. Okay? Yeah. The, everybody's obsession with... Uh, Almond milk well, but, but, a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, but before you get to the reproductions, the point is the surges in demand have consequences. They're going to cause the prices to go up. They're going to cause to be avocado wars. And then and then you have reproductions. Then you have people trying to imitate the other products. Repercussions, not Reper- reproductions. Oh, I thought you said reproductions. Repercussions. I was thinking orange. No, 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 no. Yes, it has repercussions. So that, uh, you know... All these almond trees yeah. are creating, right. you know, are threatening the They take up a lot of water. Supply. Exactly. Almond trees are the worst. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, almond trees are the worst. Everyone knows that. But I was also interested in quinoa. Yeah. Okay. From 2000 to 2008, as the price of quinoa increased more than sixfold, consumption in Bolivia plummeted as people switched to cheaper and less nutritious carbs such as instant noodles okay so we're priding ourselves on being enlightened and eating the quinoa and the people who have been eating it for centuries can't even eat it because we've cornered the market repercussions Um, as you put it repercussions so i was interested in that and then she has all kinds of suggestions of other things to eat or other things to put on your toast yeah i think you can can figure that that out yourself but um it is uh, amazing how uh, now, especially with so- social media, uh, you can create these monster fads. Well, it's not, I don't know if you can create them, but they certainly happen. And once they happen, listen, once it's delicious and it's on every menu so and it's in every household, it's that easy to create the fad. You can make a lot of money, but I, I mean, you know, it's uh, it goes viral. I do remember a time pretty clearly when avocados were not quite so ubiquitous, yes, and true. Uh, it's um, you know, sort of uh, sobering. To think that it's uh, has those repercussions. Yes, well, yes, it does. Um, okay, so finally, uh, Charles Portis died. So who's Charles Portis? Just a week or two ago, out of the clear blue, and I don't even know yeah. why myself, I said, you know what we should all read, because I'm reading now and it's great, is a book called True Grit. 
Uh, right, so you did say that. I haven't gotten to it yet. That's okay. That's okay. But but I'm sure no that. one's gotten to it. But my point is this. Uh, True Grit was written uh, by Charles Portis. And here we are two weeks later. And by total coincidence, Charles Portis has passed away. And he, he uh, is described in, this, in the Times obituary um, as uh, sort of an underappreciated a great writer. They quote uh, Ron Rosenbaum writing a piece in Esquire magazine claiming Mr. Portis was America's least known great writer. And he had an interesting backstory. He was a reporter for the New York Herald Tribune at the same time as Jimmy Breslin and Tom Wolfe and Nora Ephron. And he was as successful as any of them. And he had just gotten a posting to uh, the London Bureau to run the London Bureau. And he got up and quit and said he's going back to Arkansas to write novels. And Tom Wolfe, for one, said to him, uh, you are out of your mind. Uh, um, and But he followed through. He stayed in Arkansas. He wrote a bunch of novels. The best known was True Grit, uh, which was an enormous bestseller, which, as we mentioned before, resulted in two different movies. And it's, what's stunning to me about True Grit has always been the, uh, the narrator's voice. The narrator is a 14-year-old who... Uh, is uh, thrust into a situation where her father is shot and she goes to capture or to attempt to capture the guy who did the dirty deed. Uh, as and, one does. As, when us, when as one, one does. 14. Yeah, and it's written in the first person and the voice is very compelling. Now, he, there, this um, obit is filled with quotes from the book. I've rarely seen an obit like this. And they make a point of saying that uh, Portis really betrayed his kind of ambivalent view of newspapers where he used to work. Uh, here they have a quote from the main character, Maddie. I do not fool around with newspapers. The paper editors are great ones for reaping where they have not sown. Another game they have is to send out, uh, send reporters out to talk to you and get your stories for free. I know the young reporters are not paid well, and I would not mind helping those boys out with their scoops if they could ever get anything right. <laughs> uh, but to me, what's even most compelling is the way the book starts, and it's just a sentence or two. Here's the way it begins. People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money. Here is what happened. Uh, it's uh, compelling. Uh, so, in any event, True Grit, Clinton Portis passing away at the age of 86. Charles Portis. Oh, Charles Portis. I'm sorry. Um, and all that's right, all so we right, have. So, I'll still keep that on the list. Keep all right, it on. So, let me go uh, put that on my Kindle and um, maybe make some ice cream for dessert. And uh, this is all. Okay. Uh, so, this is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin Granger. Uh, for Tamsin Dan, read the paper. See you next week. Okay.